the closest you can come to communicating a, your truth to another person is through a metaphor that you both can feel. When your mind starts to get into that metaphorical space, that's where you can kind of let go of these sort of definitions that we have. And you can say, it feels like lying under a tree looking at the leaves. Even if you can't put it into words, you can share that experience together. Hello and welcome to Farm On, the podcast where I get to speak with agriculturists, artists, and activists on the front lines of the food movement. I'm Joe Phillips. Thanks again for tuning into the show, and as you may have noticed, Farm On is now going to be posting monthly rather than twice a month. Um, I realized I was cranking pretty hard to get two out a month. And I'm proud of the last year of podcasts, but it's time to slow down and focus on some life changes that are going on. So keep tuning in once a month and as always, keep sharing it with like-minded folks. At any rate, uh, to introduce today's guest, I'm going to start with a story. Imagine the scene. It's 1968 and you make the brazen decision to move with your soon-to-be pregnant wife to the country where you build a simple house from trees that you cut down by hand with no power tools. You then raise three children with no electricity or running water, subsisting on a system of vegetable plots that are innovative in the way that they harness the innate power of nature. On these 60 acres, you become a hero of the organic movement by teaching apprentices, authoring pivotal books on growing methods, and even creating your own custom hand tools that are sold as your signature models decades later. If this bio describes you, then you are Elliot Coleman. Now imagine that your first daughter, born in the midst of this back to the land story and raised on the 60 acres of rugged Maine coastline, utterly disconnected from modern society, decides to write a tell-all memoir about her experience drawing from memories as young as infancy. The book tells of the timeless summer afternoons, the joyous cycles of life, the struggles for survival, and the deepest recesses of mourning and loss. The book, of course, is called This Life is in Your Hands, written by Melissa Coleman and published in 2011 by HarperCollins, and it is a precious thing to discover indeed. The first time I read the book, I was just starting my own journey as a grower of things. Many years later, after my son was born, the second reading revealed emotional notes that weren't available the first time around. And that's kind of why I decided to title this episode Reflecting on Reflections, because I'm reflecting on my first reading, she's reflecting in her writing on growing up as a child and all the kind of impressions and and memories that are stitched together. And so I thought it'd be fun to just read her some of her own excerpts and get her reflections. I decided to start my conversation with Melissa, asking her about what it was like to start her own family in light of her extraordinary childhood. I hope you enjoy. Oh my God, I'm afraid to to be a parent and to have a young child that could potentially have something terrible happen to it. Uh, and I realized that was, you know, why I really, as I was 35 when I first had the kids, I had just been afraid of it. Um, mm-hmm. and so when they were born, they came with this big knock, knock on my door. 
uh, <laughs> saying, hey, uh-huh. you've got to deal with this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's time to uh, face your fears. To- yeah, exactly. Uh, which, of course, it doesn't. That doesn't come clearly always. You just you just feel afraid. You don't realize mm. that it's it's an opportunity. Um, and so at first, I was just you know over parenting, helicopter parenting, um, <laughs> um, just being neurotic about things that I didn't really understand why. And uh, <clears throat> and then I remember, I remember one day waking up and in the morning and there was a scratching in the, there was like a, a squirrel or something had gotten into the roof hmm. and it was scratching and there was like in the insulation or scratching around. And it just hit me because that sound was the sound that we always had with our mm. old farmhouse. There were always mm. <clears throat> these mice or whatever they were, squirrels uh-huh. in the roof in the, in the old insulation. And, um, and I was just lying there. I was exhausted from, uh-huh. from parenting and, um, just everything. And I was listening to it and I just, it just all came back in a rush, you know, uh-huh. this is a rush of memories and thoughts and, um, wow. and, and real beauty, you know, just real like mm-hmm. longing for, for those, for that childhood, you know, um, it's yeah. interesting that you talk about the the sound kind of bring you back because as I was rereading your book, I was thinking, what memories do I have of being five years old? You know, and my memories that I could conjure up are like sounds and impressions. You know, just sort of feelings or you know the way the you know the way the wind sounded or the way the sun felt or that kind of thing. Um, but your recounting or your sort of like stringing together this narrative and your memories, it's kind of amazing really that you could turn what I, what I would imagine are just kind of impressions of things into this, into this really tightly woven narrative. Um, so what, like, how did you, I guess, what was your writing approach or, or how much did the writing sort of like, did you feel like you were creating, um, not, not, not manufacturing memories, but sort of restitching them together. Yeah, that, and I, that's a, that's a really good way of putting it. I think at the end I said something about my mother is a quilter and, um, she sort of takes these little pieces of fabric and mm-hmm. she has them all laid out on this table mm-hmm. and she's always sort of rearranging them and sort of putting different pieces with other pieces and seeing how that would look. And, that was really how it was is I just had all these little fat scraps, these little scraps of memories. And at first I just put them all into this draft. You know, I just would sit down every morning and I would write a memory. Like, here's how I remember it. This isn't probably complete. It's probably not completely accurate. It's just what, what's coming through my fingertips right now as I write. Mm. And then I, you know, I had this whole draft of those and they were nothing. It was not a book. It was just, um, whatever, you know, Did you um, intend for it to be a book at that point or was it more just journaling? Yeah. So, well, it was like after that sort of waking up that morning with, uh, with the squirrels, my husband had said, um, you know, you should write this. You're a writer. You're, Mm. so I started thinking about my sister and, um, I was, it was just had sort of 
a lot of thoughts about it. And he said, you, sh- you know, you're a writer. This is how you process things. You should write mm-hmm. it. So I, I said, okay, you know, the kids are young, mm-hmm. but, um, we live next door to LL Bean and mm-hmm. it's open 24 hours a day. <laughs> and so there's a place to go. You know, right. there was always a place I could go. Uh-huh. Um, just even if it was just for 10 minutes, um, I would walk up there and just write as much as I could. And it got me a little space, you know, got me out of the house and just do these little deep dives. Like I just go in, get out, you know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and, and then I, I, I knew I was going to do something with it, but, but by the end of, you know, I had 60,000 words and it, it just wasn't enough to be Mm -hmm. a story. It was just these impressions. Like you say, it was sounds and feelings and moments. Um, but they kept coming faster and faster. The more Mm. you do it, you might find if you start to look into some of those memories you have, they'll breed more memories That's and more memories. And I mean, just the act of writing them down somehow uh, sort of unlocks others or. Brings. Absolutely. That's interesting. Absolutely. And everyone has them. Mm-hmm. They're just locked away in there somewhere. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was, it was amazing to see how much more there was, but it still wasn't enough. For, mm-hmm. for a book. Um, and that's where the, um, the interviews and the apprentices, um, mm-hmm. we had all these farm apprentices and I really credit mm-hmm. the book to them and to their, to being able to interview them. And <laughs> how talk hard were those folks? How hard was it to track those folks down? Cause I'm sure some of them were a bit nomadic or maybe off the beaten path. Uh, yeah. Still totally. in touch with those folks. Well, um, so of course the first people I talked to were my parents and, um, they would tell me about some of their apprentices where they knew they had gone. And so I was able to track them down. So my, my dad had kept in touch with a lot of the apprentices and he kind of knew what they were doing. He knew Mm -hmm. where they were. A lot of them were in Vermont. Mm -hmm. Um, and then as some of them had gone on to become, you know, well-known organic farmers, which was really cool. They, they just stuck to it. Um, which is what the so, apprenticeship was designed to do, which is great. You know, it's a real endorsement of your dad's work, right? Exactly. Like Larry and Sandy Jacobs of, um, of Jacobs farms in California is mm. one of like, they're huge. You, you find their tomatoes, cherry tomatoes at, at whole foods. Mm. Um, and there was another couple in Vermont at, um, uh, they were right near Shelburne farms. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. I've been there before. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they had incredible memories of the time. That's great. Uh, and they were older than I was, so they were in their. They're all in their twenties, and they were very impressionable. <laughs> and it, you know, made a big impression on them. So they remembered a lot. Were they some of the of some of the characters doing the pants dance when uh, yes. cars were driving by? <laughs> <laughs> yes, they were those people, and they were. I loved them. That's the thing yeah. as a kid. With all these older, cool kids coming around, you know, yeah. like they would tickle me and, you sure. know, tell me stories. And um, Franklin Havern was one who used to tell me this never-ending story. So I'd go find him in the fields <laughs> and he would, he would pick up the story where he left off oh, wow. and, and uh, tell me these stories. And um, so I just, I really fondly, you know... Yeah. thought of them and sure. uh, so it was really really great to find them again and to see what they were doing and um oh, to hear their their side of the story yeah and so together with i guess 
those uh, accounts, and then there were articles that were written about your dad and the farm and kind of weaving right. that stuff together. Um, so, but I think the really to me the the thing that really the glue that holds it together are your initial impressions and your memories of of how things felt and looked and sounded and it 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 gives a perspective of growing up on a farm or a homestead that's so unique that um isn't this top-down view but really like from the barefoot you know um sort of root level of things um like sometimes i look at my son when he's he's two and a half and sometimes i look at him and i'm i'm sort of wondering what kind of memories he's creating in the moment and and i i almost want to I know he can't really articulate it, but I just want to ask him, like, what, <laughs> what does this mean to you right now? Or what do you perceive? You know, I, I just really want to know that. And he won't be able to tell me until he's older. But as a parent, did you, I guess, wonder that about your children? I'm, try to I, pick- I guess I don't really think about it. You know, I mm-hmm. just try to be the, the best I can in the moment mm-hmm. and not react too much and mm-hmm. not over, you know, of course, I never... I'm <laughs> very good at it, but not, you know, not freak out too much and, and, um, just try to be there in the present with them. I think that's really, uh, all you can do as a parent is just yeah. be present with your kids, you know? Yeah. Um, but the, the, to me, the more interesting part of this is, is my parents reaction to my story. Mm. Um, and and for them, because you know, imagine your son growing up and writing a memoir. I can't imagine it. Actually, <laughs> I really can't. I can't. But at the same time, your parents were already kind of public figures because of articles and stuff, so they had some experience with being in the spotlight, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, I mean, they definitely. That wasn't well for my mom. Maybe that was a little bit sure. concerned, but she wasn't. The, it was. Yeah, she wasn't the subject all the time. Yeah, she was a little more private. But mm-hmm. for me, what was interesting was how they, my dad said, you know, his perspective was, this is your version of the story. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily my version. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. anybody. You know, your mother's version is yours. Mm-hmm. And he gave, he sort of gave me that freedom to say, you know, say what your version of the story is. Um, and I think that's so hard as a parent to do that because you really want to say, oh, you know, you want to be the PR agent <laughs> for your life, you know, like. Sure. You, know, you want to control the story. Yeah. Totally. And I'm always doing it with the girls. Is, you know, don't, you know, uh-huh. don't tell people at school that <laughs> it's this and this or whatever. Right. You know, we, we tore the paper here. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Uh, whereas my dad was like, no, we used peat moss, you know, whatever, however you want to tell it, however it affected you, that's your story. Um, and, and so that was, that was huge Hmm. to feel that, that freedom, um, and that Hmm. trust and his own ability to separate himself from it. And you, um, you mentioned the kind of how you stitched the book together, but one thing you hadn't mentioned yet was your mom's journals because you kind of allude to her journaling throughout the book. So I'm guessing that that was some that also played a part. In the journals really helps, especially mm-hmm. for the early years where mm-hmm. I, I had no real memory. So mm-hmm. like the, the way I describe this book is that it's um, a, a recreation of a lot of hmm. parts of my life. You know, I mm-hmm. recreated as best I could. It's mm-hmm. not a memory per se. It's a, you know, I tried to really carefully 
say, um, my mom's journal said this and the news article here said this, and I know that their timeline goes like this. And, Mm. um, most likely I was feeling this during those times, you know? Uh, so yeah, her journals were so helpful with that. Do you think her own journaling, was she a serious writer and did her writing influence you in some way or your style? Uh, my mom never really aspired to be a writer per Mm se. Um, she kept the journal as a journaling exercise Mm -hmm. more than anything. Um, you know, of course my dad's a writer, Mm -hmm. um, and he's, you know, aspired to be a writer, whereas my mom just was doing it just to keep, keep notes, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, but she's an artist. She's a very good artist Mm -hmm. and a a quilter. Earlier you mentioned, you kind of alluded to helicopter parenting and stuff. And, and that's, that's one of the uh, kind of lingering thoughts I had was that your upbringing was anything but the helicopter parenting lifestyle. I mean, I'm guessing you, everything was kind of rough around the (laughs) edges and I'm sure there were perils at every turn and, you know, chances for you to injure yourself. And and obviously the, um, tragedy that happened as well could have happened in any situation that like you mentioned but it happened um at your farm but do you like i feel like with each generation there's kind of a reaction to the way that we were raised or maybe we we sort of parent our kids or we think we're parenting our kids differently um consciously because we you know as a reaction to how we grew up but um what's your perspective of like over parenting or helicopter parenting now, um, where everything's, you know, the corners are all rounded and everything is scheduled. And yeah, I, I have to say, I do think rather fondly back on benign neglect as they, as they call it, you know? Um, I mean, think of all the movies from that, from like 80s, 70s, you see kids just riding around on their bikes, like ET, you know, they're just riding oh, around God. on their bikes that kind of with all lo- this freedom. That was my childhood. Yeah. I mean, I'm so nostalgic yeah. for that. Yeah. Yeah. There was just this freedom there. There wasn't a lot of big fears that parents mm. had for what could it go wrong, I mm. guess. Um, and so, you know, you, you were able to test your limits in ways that kids don't really get to, to do today. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we don't even get to not be connected by an, a phone for more than five minutes, you know, mm-hmm. like it's suffocating. And I find it, I find it suffocating. My, my husband, um, and I, he's now, um, we're now separated and we had a big discussion about the girls having a phone. Mm-hmm. And he really felt like it wasn't safe for them not to have a phone. And I was like, mm. "Hey, remember our childhood?" <laughs> you know, like, was he raised like, in a similar way? He had a lot of freedom. Yeah, like yeah. like anybody was back then. And you didn't have to just be on an organic farm in the middle of the woods. I mean, you could be in the middle of suburbia, and, and you weren't. You know, you didn't have to report back till dinner. Yeah, if, as if my wife that. says, um, yeah. when she was a kid, she had a lot of freedom, and her, her mom would say. You know, if something's really wrong, the cops will call me. But otherwise, like, <laughs> I don't want to hear from you, you know. Exactly. Uh, I mean, you know, you hope you don't have to wait for the cops to call. But <laughs> right. worst case scenario, you know, there, there was a time when when um, a neighbor of mine and I, we got into some guy's barn and he called the cops and mm-hmm. we were fine and everyone was fine. And it was a, a good learning experience sure. that 
No, you don't. You don't go into somebody else's barn, and yeah. Um, yeah. and sometimes learning it firsthand like that is the way that you really learn it, rather yeah. than just being told it a hundred yeah. times. And um, so, yeah, I do feel I do feel nostalgic for that. And I am I am I try to be open with my kids, and and really put them in um, what do you call it situations where they have. Um, mm-hmm. You know where there's limited risk, but where they can just wander mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and you know find their way, mm-hmm. and um, especially I, I take them up to my dad's farm, mm-hmm, um, which is mm-hmm. the same farm uh, with a new modern home and mm-hmm. and is it the same technology. land actually the same acreage yeah no yeah kidding. it is I didn't yep. know that and it's uh you know it's now it's a model for yeah. for um, four season agriculture they mm-hmm. do. Uh, they have greenhouses, and um, their books are based on the research they do there. And mm-hmm. um, so I take my kids up. Acres, or has it shrunk or grown? Well, so we sold off. He sold off um, some parcels to neighbors who were originally apprentices mm-hmm. and wanted wanted to stay. And he sold it off at the same price that the nearing sold it oh, to him. Um, so not, it was a little small. Not at market value. No. Yeah, Amazing. but just it. Give other people the opportunity. Um, that, yeah, That's yeah, beautiful. and they've turned out to be great neighbors and friends um, oh, sure. as well. But my kids can go up there now and run around and be on the farm and climb trees and play with their cousins and feed the chickens and just have that lifestyle, but with you know a, a sense of of mm-hmm. safety for mm-hmm. me. Um, I feel like it's a, it's a um, you know, what a wonderful balance. Yeah. It's definitely, um, I don't feel like it was unsafe when I was a child, mm-hmm. actually, even mm-hmm. though, you know, what happened to my sister, mm-hmm. um, that the kids drown in swimming pools mm-hmm. in suburban homes that have fences around them and alarm systems and sure. phone phones and, um, electricity. Sure. And there's this, I don't, I didn't come away from that experience with the sense that it was because of how we lived or it was because of, of, um, a failing. It was because we were really busy, like anyone's really busy and because it, things had gotten too busy to manage, you know, is really what it was. And that can happen anywhere. So that answers my other question, whether or not you had too much freedom, which is kind of a, I guess, a accusation that comes up maybe a lot with, back to the landers and stuff. But I, I personally, um, I'm a teacher too. And the more that I teach, I actually teach agriculture to children now, but the more I teach, the more, the the less I want to have control over the situation, the more freedom I want to give children and, um, maybe the less kind of conventional educational, approach I want to take. I actually am in love with the unschooling model and the, the whole movement to un, unschool and homestead school and all that stuff. So that's another reason that reading your book again, it just, you know, it makes me long for that kind of, that kind of freedom, you know, to yeah. things. Yeah. I mean, what approach do you take as a teacher, um, to, to that? Like, how can you bring that into the schools? I guess is, is what well, I wonder. Um, I guess I'm lucky because I teach at a Montessori school and yeah, 
so the Montessori approach is, is open to experience and, and, and a lot of time, giving children a lot of time to kind of create their own boundaries and create their own goals. And, um, but also just farming, also learning how to grow things is such a cyclical and as you know, it, it takes seasons to work through ideas and sometimes years. And so just really letting that be the guide and, um, yeah, you know, teaching that when children are outside working in the farm, maybe they're working out for an hour or two, but that hour or two is part of this long ongoing cycle that they, they're just, they're just part of the puzzle. Um, so I don't know. It, it lends itself to that kind of openness, I guess. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, if there's anything that I miss from my childhood is that sense of a summer afternoon that just goes on forever. And <laughs> you, you know, there's things you need to do, like, mm-hmm. you know, eat or pick the peas or mm-hmm. whatever it is. But, um, but just that sense of time being so um, luxurious, you know, just yeah. so full and, and there not being so many limits on it that I feel today. You know, I just feel like everything is so tight. I have to be here. I have to be here. I have to yeah. do this. I have to do that. And that if there's anything we can give our children, I think it's just that freedom of summer days that have nothing, they have nothing to do and mm-hmm. nowhere to be. And, um, and to be in the outdoors in that, with that freedom in the, heat of summer or that mm-hmm. even the cold cold of winter even if it's on a uh it's just a winter day mm-hmm. being outside on a hike or just be cold uh, right yeah yeah just just be in nature in and and in being in nature sort of being outside of time because like you said it the seasons keep returning that winter <laughs> is going to come, come back it's it's never over the time um a cyclical and it's there's something very like even just talking about it right now is making me kind of relax. <laughs> it does. It affects your nervous system, right? Just getting into that state of mind. But it makes me think that back in the day, I mean, we're talking about the '60s, back to the Landers. It's kind of when the book is set, um, or I don't know, was it '60s, '70s, or what's the '70s? '70s. Yeah. Well, right. Cause we moved to the farm in '68, so okay. I started in the '60s. Yeah, you and right. I are close to the same age, so yeah, that that makes sense. But um, but still, today I'm thinking to kind of get our kids back into that mindset of getting outside of the constraints of time. We really have to detach. Like it seems like now it's, a, it's such a conscious effort to do that, whereas back in the day, um, you didn't have those. You weren't tethered to the internet (laughs) yeah (laughs) and your mind could just be free i mean just like the thought of of letting your mind just be free like Mm. that um is so rare these days i i feel like i'm always controlled by you know something dinging like just dinging right now (laughs) (laughs) and and did you plan that <laughs> yes, seriously. <laughs> seriously. And our kids are the same thing. I mean, they're not getting it because they're getting phones and they're yeah. getting computers. And, you know, they're they're never going to have that. I remember a, a really clear um, 
example of this is I was studied in studied abroad in Tibet. And mm. I turned it off. Even I've turned off. My, <laughs> you can't turn it off. Thinking. I know. <laughs> Um, but I was studying abroad in Tibet, and we were on the bus in in um, middle of Tibet somewhere, driving on this long road in the middle of nowhere with no time, no sense of you know anything. And all we could do, like our minds were just scrambling to grab onto something, and all we could do is talk about junk food in America. You know, a bunch of kids from America talking about their what junk food they missed. You know, yeah. and TV shows and pop culture, and all of a sudden, one of our teachers got up and he just stormed down the aisle of the bus at us. And he goes, I wish you could hear yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> and he was, he was from France, but he'd been living in India. And he goes, he goes, you Americans, you think you're free. You mm. think you have so much freedom. He goes, you are not free. Your minds are so not free. You can't wow. even be in this place and not yeah. be tethered to all these commercial materialistic things from your country. Yeah. Um, and it just really struck me as like, holy crap, you know, yeah. uh, our minds are not free from this. We are, we right. are being programmed every minute by, by capitalism. Right. Uh, we are being fed, you know, both junk food and, and crap we don't need. And, yeah. and we're sucking it right in. We're just like sponges, you know, the, I always think of the manufactured consent idea that Chomsky talks about. That it's totally he he gets it, Chomsky. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, so I like I said I bookmarked a bunch of um, excerpts from your book. Um, this life is in your hands, and I thought it'd be fun to just read some excerpts and then since it's been a while since I read it and it's been a while since you wrote it, I'm just curious what your kind of reflections on these reflections might be. That sounds great. Yeah. Okay. We'll try it out and see how it goes. Um, so I'm just going to go chronologically. It's this first part's from the prologue and speaking about just kind of the, the languid pace of time in nature you wrote, when, when you focused on the leaves fluttering in the dappled light, they vibrated and shimmered into one, becoming a million tiny particles. You felt a shift inside and you began to vibrate too, on the same frequency as everything else. All secrets were there, all truths, all knowledge. You had to scan with your heart to find what you were seeking. It might not be spoken in words, it might be hidden in rhyme, in song and images. You knew the tree and the earth were the same as you, made of particles like you, come together in different form. You loved it all as you loved yourself. Yeah. What, is that? Yeah, the, what does that bring up for I, you? I mean, that's the closest I could come to capturing that feeling of, of uh, you know, when I hear you read it, um, you can only put it in words and by putting it in words, you give it a certain definition, but it's more just that, that feeling when you're in nature and in sort of timeless spaces mm -hmm. where you don't have to be anywhere where you can just, um, just relax into, into the sort of 
oneness of everything, I guess. But, you know, the minute I say that, then it kind of gives it a, a, a <laughs> oneness kind of thing. But, but know. you know what I mean? Like, I know. But it, it is a thing, you know, like you felt it before. Everyone's felt that before. It's just yes. that sort of like, ah, you know. Yes. And I'm realizing I'm asking you to comment on something that you've worked really hard on to capture in words uh, and could be edited and rewritten and and really, it's like poetry, a lot of what you write. And now I'm asking you just to <laughs> kind of reflect on it freehand, which is hard to hard to make it um, concise, I realize. but Yeah, but it's funny because I do edit that passage when I read it aloud. Sometimes I, um, I cut out some words, you know, and because uh, I'm an overwriter. And so I'm always mm-hmm. subtracting, subtracting and, you know, trying to get to the essence. Um, mm-hmm. And even to, you know, even after months of editing it there's still more it, the the truth i find tends to be um in metaphor you know and because mm. if you say a truth like if you say oneness then all of a sudden it's <laughs> a cliche or it's a um, right. so the, the closest you can come to communicating a, your truth to another person is through a metaphor that you both can feel rather mm. than Mm-hmm. understand um and so when you when your mind starts to get into metaphors into that metaphorical space mm-hmm. um that's where you can kind of let go of these sort of definitions that we have and you can say it feels like lying under a tree looking mm-hmm. at the leaves mm-hmm. you know um and and someone else can feel that feeling and <laughs> even if you can't put it into words you can share that experience together that's more true to me than than actually saying it somehow. like your feeling of that whatever that feeling of for you of lying under a tree on a sunny day looking at the leaves mm-hmm. do you read poetry or is that something that influences you or lyrical yeah, yeah. writing oh yeah um i mean i i tend to um I tend to like odd poets. Uh, I mean, they're well-known poets, but they're not mm. sort of um, politically correct poets. Great. But I mean, like in the poetry world, you know, they're probably perfectly politically correct. But like, mm. I like like E. E. Cummings and mm-hmm. and T. S. Eliot and like mm-hmm. um, uh, Anna Akhmatova and um, just uh, like poets that aren't like maybe cool mm-hmm. <laughs> poetry wise mm-hmm. i mean they're famous poets but mm-hmm. um but but because what i think they do so well is they get at that essence of mystery and metaphor um yes they're deep they um well, they you go deep you mentioned t.s Eliot at the end of the book and his comments on time and and that kind of idea that present is the only real time that we have right right yeah it seems to kind of come up as a kind of thesis of the book is it would that be right yeah well the e cummings quote at the beginning too Mm -hmm. um beauty is more now than dying's when (laughs) which is um yeah to me you know (laughs) um those few short years of my sister's life um in the moment that was a whole lifetime. Yeah. So now I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but one of the things that's cool about the book is you go from this kind of lyrical 
metaphorical style and kind of your impressions of childhood to kind of the hard realities. Um, in the chapter called Sustenance, you write, that my parents had chosen this lifestyle over an easier one wouldn't matter in the moment when the goats had eaten the spring lettuce and there was nothing left in the root cellar. The drinking water was muddy with runoff and there was no money under the couch for gas to get into town, not to mention that the Jeep's registration had expired and we had no savings account, trust fund, or health insurance policy, no house in town to fall back on. We were living the way much of the world actually lives. On the other hand, we didn't have a phone, water, or electric bills, health insurance premiums, or a mortgage, or car payment, or any other monthly payment for that matter. No one could come to shut off our utilities and take away our home. Um, I love that in that passage you just casually drop like, by the way, this is how most of the world exists, you know. Right, right. Is that true? I mean, I was just, as you said that, I was thinking to myself. Well, yeah, is, is that true? Is that true? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it it was true then, back mm-hmm. then. Today, I don't know anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, everyone's connected today, right? <laughs> I mean, it mm-hmm. seems like even these people out in the middle of nowhere living off the grid have have a solar panel that connects to a something that... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, I think to be honest, to be really honest about that, we all live... There's no security, right? <laughs> right. You know, there's nothing underneath our feet, right? Yeah, yeah. And you might have, you know, a huge trust fund or mm-hmm. whatever, but like the, you hear all the stories where, you know, all of a sudden that trust fund's gone overnight, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. or or the house. I, I just heard about a family's house is flooded, you know, mm-hmm. gone in that flood. Um, yeah. Houston, yeah. So, Puerto Rico. Yeah. Totally. Seems to be happening these days more than <laughs> more frequently than ever, I guess, or mm-hmm. it feels that way to me. Um, that kind of unsettled quality to things. Um, yeah. But uh, I love that passage because you really kind of are able to capture that delicate balance or that dance between having too little and maybe having too much or, or, you know, right. Whether or not your parents were able to capture the good life, you know, the good life that where you don't have that, the debt, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, and also I think, um, there's another side to that, the, those people who lost their house, then, you know, all of a sudden someone, offered them a place to stay and then something else came through mm-hmm. and then you know what I mean there's always mm-hmm. these shifting things and it might shift in the negative one moment and then into your positive the next moment and it's just kind of being okay with that with that reality about yeah. life that um, is a perfect segue wasn't there something that Scott Nearing writes yeah there was something about pluses and minuses but it yes was, it was oh really at the very end yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It says it, it's in the last chapter um, before the epilogue or whatever. Uh, oh, man, i got to find right, it. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, here it is. Yeah. So this is in Mercy. Scott Nearing, who was your neighbor and who wrote, um, was it Living the Good Life? Living the Good Life, yeah. 
He said, we live from minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, and at each point we are a little different. If there is no change, this is the open door to death. Life is a progression. It is not a standing yeah. still. It is either a plus or a minus. I mean, it sounds like Scott Nearing was your Zen master. Right. Yeah. That I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a great quote. I mean, he, they were, the thing is, is, is they were people, you know, the Nearings, yeah. and a lot of people looked up to them and, and took wisdom from them. Um, but they were, they were just people too, trying to figure it out just like we all are. And they just happened to write it down and, yeah. um, and have some good, good thoughts about it. Uh, but you know, he, he was just trying to figure that out. Mm. Um, and, uh, I, I, I feel really grateful to mm. them for being able to put it into words, what so many people were feeling, mm. um, and for being able to give people an option to step outside of the mainstream life and say, Hey, maybe we want to just not be part of that. And Opting that's okay. Out, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so, um, I'm wondering what role, um, omens have played in your writing or in your life or, or like there's some things that I highlighted that are so, um, haunting and it really, I don't know. It really, I guess, plays with this idea of like memory versus sensing things and pending in the future. There's this, uh, passage where you, in the, uh, sorry, the, uh, chapter is called water. Um, but the passage you wrote was a call I know now from research is uncommon appearing in fewer than 1000 births, excuse me, one in a thousand births due to the rarity and strange appearance of the sack, which is the birth sack, birth sack. Legends have legends have built up over the centuries. The most common being that a baby born on, on call, which is French. And I just completely butchered it. (laughs) will never drown. will never drown as a result. Calls were once collected and preserved at birth and sold to sailors who believed it would protect them from drowning at sea. So that was referring to... Heidi was born Heidi. in call. I think it's just call. I think you said it right. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, she was... I just was so haunted. I mean, for me, I get that tingle up my, you know, my spine mm-hmm. when I read some certain things like that where it's just so like it's mm-hmm. so interesting and sort of haunting and and then to find out that Heidi was born in call um and and that we had we had lost you know we never preserved it um mm. not that that you know who knows but mm-hmm. but uh just how those wh- where do those myths come from and what are they founded in in some little bit of truth and you know, because we were living in the middle of the woods without our, just without like a, the society's bigger mm-hmm. explanation. I mean, I said mm-hmm. this in the book, the society's sort of like, this is why things happen. Right. And right. this is what, things. yeah, this is what we believe. And we were, we were allowed to have a little more freedom around what, um, why things happened and Well, and what, you talk about you, how you didn't have a religion necessarily. I mean, you right. considered yourself spiritual people, but there wasn't 
this dogma or this uh, ethos or idioms. I mean, it's interesting because you were living in a way that was so human and so historically human, but without that kind of reverence to one overarching um, deity or way to make sense of things is that yeah yeah definitely um and and when i think about it there there's just well you know the um the whole thing about the church is actually taking our there's a like famous um allegory the grand inquisitor um in the book the brothers karamazov Mm. and and he says um he says uh, the grand inquisitor says you know we don't he runs into Christ and he says, we actually don't need you. You gave man freedom and we, we are here to take their freedom away because it's too much. The freedom is too much. They just want to know <laughs> this and this. They want it to be made simpler because if you think about it, why do all these things happen? Who knows? What is the reason for this? Like, it's so overwhelming. You know, right. it, it's, it's, if you save the call, will it save your life? Like there's right. just so many, so many variables that yeah. it's, it's overwhelming. And, and so it is, it is, he said, the grand inquisitor said, you know, we just took that burden off of, mm-hmm. off of the church takes that burden off. Oh. oh no. Are you still there? I lost you. Can you hear me? Oh, <laughs> uh, what a terrible time to lose your audio. I'm going to, Oh, you're back. You're back. I'm here. You I was just, just going to text you. Yeah, that was, why does that keep happening? It's like, um, the Grand Inquisitor was trying to tell us, (laughs) (laughs) take away our sense of control. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. Like, why does that happen? Why? Why? (laughs) It's a question for the Pope. Why does my audio keep blanking out on my Skype call? Why does God hate my interview? Right. But then there's people who would say like, oh, well, you know, that, that, that wasn't really an important thing or whatever. Um, you know, there's always like that, that way of looking at things. Um, yeah, but you guys were, I mean, okay. So I found the passage that kind of highlights your sort of, I guess, maybe pagan religion is the best way to describe it. You said we didn't have a connection to God in the traditional sense, but rather a spiritual reverence for nature. We appreciated the power of the sun to germinate our crops, the rain to keep them growing, the beauty of a sunrise, the glory of the sea sparkling with diamonds. Each found his or her own sources of wonder and mystery in the unfolding of the universe, without the guarantees and assurances that church provided. This life was the priority, and in the effort to survive, we didn't worry about what would happen afterward. Right. For yeah, better, that's for worse, right? better than I can say it here. <laughs> <laughs> You've already done it. Yeah. <laughs> well, then you go on yeah. to talk about the problem with your unorganized religion, right? So. Yeah, I mean the 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 problem with it is that you don't have any um, explanations for things, and that can feel overwhelming. Yeah. I feel like there's something more to that, though. That's important. Um, what is that? If, if you're living in the moment all the time, right, mm-hmm. it, it's, it, it can feel good. But then a lot of things pile up that you never get around to doing that you kind of need to do, mm-hmm. you know, so you can, you can live in the moment, 
but you kind of have to shift back to have perspective on the moment mm. to like, this is what I feel like I do a lot is I'll, I'll just need to take some time to kind of reflect on, mm. you can't live in the moment all the time yeah. and you need to have some time to reflect and say, okay, well that went well and that didn't go well. Mm. And, and then you learn and that's how you learn. But is and, that a, but is that a religious, is that a religious quality? Yeah. Um, well, if you have the church and the church will do that for you, they'll kind of say, well, these things tend to work better than these things. Mm -hmm. And this tends to be more productive than that. Mm -hmm. And so then you can use somebody else's wisdom to figure that out, or you Mm -hmm. can sit and listen to your own wisdom. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think what we were trying to do is tap into our own wisdom, Mm -hmm. but you can't always find the time to listen. Right. So it's like creating this holding that space to be reflective or to, to, to ask how is this kind of serving the mission or definitely. Yeah. Like just even with your raising your child, you know, just mm-hmm. what, you know, today was, I learned like this works better than that mm-hmm. when I'm dealing with this situation, um, with my children mm-hmm. and you could read a parenting book about it and they might tell you one thing, but you're going to know best yourself if you mm-hmm. can listen. But we're often so busy. We can't listen, <laughs> you know, it's so you're so dealing with all these things. Do you ever get kind of envious of like really hardcore religions, like Orthodox religions and stuff where they're just like, this is how you dress. This is how right, you right. sit down to dinner. Um, this is when you go to bed and when you get up and this is when you can't eat sugar or something. I don't know. Right. Doesn't yeah. It seems <laughs> nice, but they probably have children die too, you know? Right. <laughs> so yeah, right. I think maybe it's no guarantee, right? yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But I do, I do think sometimes that don't you wish you could just, um, have like a, a pat formula. Like <laughs> if I do this and if I eat this and if mm-hmm. I, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. isn't that what we're all trying to figure oh, out? Like yes. the perfect <laughs> formula for life. <laughs> the jackpot. Yeah. Here's a little highlight to kind of get us back down to earth here. Um, highlight of the realities of homesteading. We learned to hold our poop at night because a trip to the outhouse was too scary in the dark. Our outhouse didn't have a toilet seat and lid like the nearings did, your neighbor's. Just a slit in the floor that we squatted over above the hole in the ground. In the dark, you were afraid of what was down in that hole, even more afraid that you might fall in. Um, I'm potty training my son right now. So, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> so like, I know for him to get up in the middle of the night and like use the potty is like a very, it's like a, is an adventure, you know? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking how gross that is. So like, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> totally the, gross. the, the, the refuse of life, you know, um, the, the ones these days, the Clivus Maltrum that a lot of homesteaders use, um, yeah. are self composting, which is really makes it quite much more lovely, doesn't it? Because right. then it's taking all that refuse and it's, you know, turning it into compost that then you can put on, on the garden. Um, but, or maybe not in the food garden. I I can't remember if you're, if that's allowed, but I've just always thought the whole compost, 
um, metaphor is mm-hmm. is a pretty great one because it's, um, you know, uh, it, well, there's also that children's book that says everybody poops. But, oh, yeah, I know that one. <laughs> <laughs> I can recite it if you want. <laughs> Um, but it's a good one. The whole beauty of, of being on a farm and, um, for a child and, and for an adult though, is, is just seeing that cycle that it it goes from yuck Mm -hmm. to beauty and from back to yuck again, and then to beauty again. And, and just kind of knowing, like, I think our conversation really hit on this a lot is that Mm -hmm. there are times when you're in the yuck and <laughs> it can feel really yucky, especially like when my sister fell in the outhouse, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you get out, you get cleaned up, and you get uh, this beautiful day, and you go for a swim in the ocean, and it's gorgeous. And then you're in the beauty again, and that's pretty much life, right? You know? Man, that's it. And I think, <laughs> I think if, and as a modern parent now, if we can just kind of create those or help to kind of guide children to have those experiences and not sanitize everything. But as you said, make sure that it's kind of part of the narrative of life, that it's not just yuck. Right. Right. Beautiful thing that is. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's life's pretty great. In the end. (laughs) I'm glad you think so. Cause really I, I, this book it's it's a tragic tale, but it is so much about that. It's about how do you how do you find meaning or some sense of order in it, and without giving too much away, I think you you do it in the book, and um, and it was so wonderful to to have an opportunity to read it again, and. Um, and also, I'm so glad to find out your other writing, too. I wanted to ask what you're working on now, or is there anything interesting that you're doing now that you're excited about? Yeah, I'm actually working on a, a book about the nearings. Um, oh, so wonderful. it's the sort of next, yeah, the next story that is, has declared itself. Super. And is it written from a first-person point of view, like this yeah. book was? No, um, it's, it's more, you know, um, third person about them, about the, actually their early lives, which I didn't know mm. a lot about and is, are really quite fascinating. Um, before they even decided to become homesteaders, um, they had a whole other life. Wow. So that's been really cool to, to learn about. Well, that's wonderful. I, um, look forward to, to following that, um, progression and your writing and and I hope anyone who missed this book when it was uh when it was when it first came out can uh check it out again because it's it's one of my favorites so thanks thanks for writing it and really pouring yourself into it thanks yeah it was nice to hear you read the the little bits just it's always interesting to hear what resonates for people and um you know it's it's really it's your book. You know, it's not my That's how book. I feel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel. And uh, if anybody claims it for their own, I'll tell them they're wrong. It's mine. <laughs> I've got notes in it and I've got bookmarks. So there. <laughs> I've got, it's dog-eared in all the right places. 
that's awesome. Um, well, oh, okay. I found the quote. Time present and time past are both perhaps present and time future. That right. was T.S. Eliot. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. The there man. you go. And the end and the beginning were always there before the beginning and after the end. What? <laughs> this blew my hair back with that one. <laughs> uh well, uh, I have no idea what that means, but it's perfect. And um, <laughs> and uh, that's what I'm saying. He's not like a. They're not like cool poets. I mean, they're right. cool poets, but they're but they're like people are kind of like yeah, right, mm-hmm. right, yeah, whatever. Um, but uh, thank you for doing this podcast and for for oh, asking pleasure. questions about these things. It's my really pleasure. great. Well, I'm glad we could chat and. Um, have a great rest of your day and best of luck to your family and your future writing endeavors. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. Um, if you like this show, please share it with like-minded folks. You can find farm on the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Contact me on Twitter at farm on Dharma. That's farm on D H A R M A. My email, if you want to do it old school, is dharmaonthefarm at gmail.com. Until next time, uh, if you're a sponsor and uh, have some money to throw at cool projects like this, please do hit me up. I would really like to buy a new microphone and maybe even some um, hosting space, server space, whatever they call that. The space where the podcast lives costs money. And uh, yeah, so... Holler if you've got the dollar. Until next time, follow the sun and farm on.